the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, just real quick, starting it off with a bam. What does a clock do when it gets hungry? I don't know. It goes back four seconds. Ha <laughs> ha. Very good. So here, here's mine. Oh, go ahead. Relate, go ahead. Related to Halloween. Oh, ooh. Ju- just at Halloween. Yeah. Did Did you cover pumpkin this year? By the way, uh, my my uh, my daughter did, uh, and, and actually dressed as a pumpkin, made a paper mache pumpkin head. Uh, but I was actually uh, flying, traveling on Halloween, so I didn't really get to do a whole oh. lot with uh, with her. She had a paper mache pumpkin head from the movie Pumpkin Head. Not that pumpkin head. Um, oh, okay. That would have been <laughs> that awesome. would have been a, that would have been a killer pumpkin head costume. No, it, it was it was just a regular pumpkin with you know eyes and a mouth, but it looked kind of creepy and weird with the eyes like too far apart to be like natural. It was it was a kind of a good look. Yeah, there's probably like two listeners that know the Sam Winston pumpkin head monster who Lance Henriksen. Uh, yeah, right? we're all right. Yeah. We're all right. Uh, all right, so here here's the joke. Uh, Two listeners, and I'm one of them. <laughs> exactly. All right, so what do you get if you divide the circumference of a pumpkin by its diameter? Oh, uh, uh, pumpkin pie? Very good, sir. Hey! <laughs> so, Glenn, uh, we've got to cover Halloween here real quick. What, uh, what did you dress up as for Halloween? Last year, you were a, a mind flayer kind of creature a lovecraftian kind of horror uh what about this year well technically last year i didn't do my um the usual place i go to which is first avenue which is this big um nightclub in town that used to be owned by prince it's where they filmed purple rain back in the 80s oh cool uh, so this year i actually did the same thing but a different version of that lovecraftian monster uh th- this time i actually went a little little more in depth i not only did the prosthetics but i also did a bald cap did contacts and did a couple other things so Whoa. just kind of took it up a notch to um experiment a little bit with this makeup and um prosthetics that, that's all because i've got a costume i'm working towards but i need to sort of master a few things so it will be about five years before i get to that costume so uh, this year i was at the florida division iai conference and they tend to do a uh, halloween costume party on uh, one of the nights uh so i got uh, a set of uh, i got a jumpsuit like coveralls kind of jumpsuit with a gizmonics patch and uh, went as uh, you know joel from uh, mystery science theater that's uh, awesome so uh, nobody in the entire conference knew who i was uh <laughs> not not surprised are you like a painter or something <laughs> uh that's okay it was it's still you know it was pretty simple just you know a jumpsuit and the patch and like a belt but uh it turned out pretty good if you know what gizmonics means, then then you probably could, could get it. Yeah, I've got a Doctor Forrester outfit as well. So yeah, sometime we'll have to we'll have to pair up and uh, do do a combo some some year. Florida, I, I man, that's they do it. You know, that might be the place. 
All right, before we get any further into things, uh, I want to uh, you know say thank you to uh, our newest patron on patreon.com, and that'd be Sally. Thank you very much for uh, for joining in and maybe even rejoining in. Sometimes these names look familiar, but uh, uh, yeah, I definitely appreciate uh, everyone who uh, who contributes uh, on uh, patreon.com slash podcast. And, you know, met uh, a bunch of listeners at the, uh, the Florida IAI. Um, oh, cool. So it, it's, <laughs> it's always kind of funny when, when you're talking with, uh, with examiners and they keep looking at you funny and, and you're like, you're, you're looking at me funny cause you're not used to seeing my face when you're hearing my voice talk at the podcast, aren't you? <laughs> like, yes. It's, it's just a weird, it's weird. <laughs> so it's yeah. kind of weird getting to that point where people are like, it's weird to see you in person, <laughs> but, uh, no, it was great to talk to, uh, to a bunch of examiners from Florida, obviously, and uh, a little crew from Michigan as well. So, uh, hi to the, the Michigan crew that made it down to Florida. All right. Well, Glenn, anything else you want to cover before we get into the article here for today? No, I'm good. All right. So a few months ago, I was, I read through this very carefully because of some proposal I was writing up. And I uh, was very interested, and now we're finally getting to it because uh, because we've been going so slowly and getting episodes out uh, this year. Uh, that was one thing, Glenn, I heard quite a bit at the Florida conference was, you, know, you guys got to get more episodes out. <laughs> get your F together. <laughs> uh, this is uh, latent print quality in blind proficiency testing using quality metrics to examine laboratory performance uh, by Brett Gardner, Madison Newman, and Sharon Kelly. Uh, this is a CSAFE publication. Uh, let's see, or published through Iowa State University with the research done with the Houston um, Forensic Science Center. Uh, very excited to get to this paper. I mean, just right away, really looking forward to other agencies, other laboratories using this as a jumping off point to to doing something very similar in their own labs. Yeah, and l- let me just throw a little background here to to the paper. Uh, as you mentioned, it was it's by CSAFE. That acronym is C S A F E, and um, you know we've talked about CSAFE a little bit for those that are either outside the country <laughs> or don't don't know. Uh, this is this organization that has been funded by the the government in the United States. They've been now around for about seven years, maybe eight years. And uh, they were organized to handle statistical questions in forensic science. Uh, one of the big goals was to develop statistical models for um, pattern evidence, fingerprints, footwear evidence. Uh, this stuff was – firearms was, was one of the big targets. And also find ways to bring objective methods to to the forefront. That was that was really one of the big things: is moving us away from, as PCAST had noted, more subjective methods, black box subjective methods, and moving us towards more objective methods. So this paper ties nicely into that into the mission of CSAFE, and uh, the author or the lead author, Brett. O. Gardner. I've actually read some of his papers before. I mean, he's, he's at the University of Virginia, and he was a, a key author on a, on a really great paper that looked at Daubert hearings in the United States and how effective those 
hearings are in the United States. One of the things that he showed is Daubert hearings for the exclusion of, of latent fingerprint evidence is basically not an effective strategy. He doesn't say you shouldn't, as an attorney, defense attorney, you shouldn't ever really try it, but he basically says it's just not effective. And he, looks, he looked at it at the time, I think it was 2007 or so, he probably looked at hundreds of Daubert hearings and found that very few of them ever I, mean, I think he noted one or two that resulted in exclusion of fingerprint evidence and only a handful resulted in limiting the evidence but anyway I've, I've always followed his work I've, I've liked him as, as an author and uh, this paper is no different I, I would agree just ruining the surprise uh, jump to the end I really enjoyed this paper I, I've got some suggestions and ideas on on where it can be improved but i mean to be fair one of the things i really like about it is that they kind of noted some of those things some of the limitations of you know of the paper in the paper itself so um yeah agreed that that's that right away is is you know fantastic way to to write so any kind of criticism i i have is uh, is really nitpicking because because overall i think this is really great work yeah with you there so, uh, all right. So let's let's jump in, Glenn. Uh, um, so overall, the the kind of premise of of the paper is that proficiency testing is you know fairly common across the latent print discipline, uh, especially in accredited labs. Uh, however, all virtually all or almost, or if not all, proficiency testing is uh, is done in an open way, where the examiner knows that they're being tested. They receive the test. Like, okay, these are the samples of the test, uh, and then they provide back the answers, and they're, that's graded against ground truth. Uh, what this paper is describing is now for about two and a half years, now probably closer to three or three and a half years, of uh, Houston Forensic Science Center setting up a program where ground truth proficiency test samples are inserted into casework. Uh, where the examiners don't know that they're working on a proficiency test. It just looks like any other case. And then the quality assurance unit evaluates their answers based on the reports they write up for those cases and then measures, you know, if there an, if an error occurs or if they're uh, performing as expected, uh, giving the answer that's expected based on the ground truth. Yeah, Eric, in fact, we actually, if you recall, we actually covered the uh, previous paper from the Houston Forensic Science Center where they talked about their blind uh, quality uh, control proficiency testing program. And in fact, that was episode 220. If listeners are interested, it was uh, well, just uh, about a year and a half ago, episode 220. Yes, uh, that's where we, we talked about just the, the concept in general that what they've implemented and then here's more, if I'm remembering right, this is more now the results of, uh, of implementing that, uh, that blind quality control program. Yes. First thing, right up front, no false positive errors were detected during this process. Absolutely fantastic. That's, is what we would hope for. Again, this is going beyond just a black box or some other accuracy. Uh, testing scenario where it's just a single examiner. This is going through their entire quality assurance process. So these cases look like any other case. So they would get verification like any other case. We very much expect not to have any kind of uh, false positive or you know, occurring uh, in this lab. 
uh, or be you know, very low odds of one occurring. You know, right off the bat, that that is kind of one of the first takeaways from this paper. Yeah, and and just uh, to put a, a finer point to it, uh, the paper describes that basically 376 latent prints were looked at in in the in these blind proficiency tests. So zero false positives out of 376, but that's not the important thing per se. We'll we'll have to break that down into how many non matches were available. Right. So let's let's first describe a little bit of the setup of how they uh, how they went about this. Again, it might be a little bit of an overlap from our our last episode on it. You know, just just briefly describing uh, this process, uh, and, and this is in again reaction to the open proficiency tests, uh, like what you might take from CTS, is sometimes viewed as easier than um, than regular casework, and there's been some research done that that you know confirms that that might actually be the case where the, you know those samples from uh from cts that a lot of agencies use are generally easier than regular casework for this method uh, they have as part of the quality assurance unit they have a, a team that is really dedicated to just that unit to creating these samples and it goes beyond just late prints for other disciplines as well but what they're doing is uh, creating latent prints using the same materials that uh, the Houston PD, their main submitter, would use, using that same packaging materials, just all of the, of the – everything that goes into the evidence that arrives, making it identical to well, what an actual case from Houston PD would look like when it arrives so that the examiners really have no way to tell the difference between – a quality assurance uh, pro- blind proficiency test case and a real actual case. Uh, so they're aiming to have these uh, these blind samples be about five percent of their casework. And so let's see, they list here about uh, two hundred and ninety blind cases uh, inserted into casework, and examiners reviewing three hundred seventy six latent prints, mostly fingers. I noticed they said here ninety four point three percent. Uh, fingers, 4.9 palms, and then less than 1%, uh, either joints or unspecified. That seemed a little heavy on the finger side. Glenn, did you get that same impression? Uh, well, frankly, I actually missed that data point when I read the paper, but now that you bring it up, yeah, I mean, we know from previous research that palm prints represent about one-third of latent print submissions, so yeah, I mean, if it's trying to represent that, it's probably a little light. But I can I can see why from a, a research standpoint, it's probably a little bit trickier to uh, gather those palm prints for for proficiency testing. And but again, I, I one of the ways I view this paper uh, as like a pilot study almost, right? Where where they're 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 this is probably the first agency to really do this to this extent. Uh, and there's going to be some kinks to work out, which is fine. But the important part is that they're, they're moving forward. They've got this in place and there's going to need to be some fine tuning as it goes along. Other agencies can follow in, follow this, uh, this method, do the, some of their own fine tuning, but it's, it's the first step uh, or an early step in this process, uh, towards having, blind proficiency testing as a regular part of uh, the casework that examiners get. Yeah. So the 
the latent prints are created from you know, contact from five people. So what they've done is, you know, these five people create the latent prints on different uh, items, and then they're powdered and lifted uh, and entered in as evidence. And then those five people are also in their local county uh, APHIS system uh, with fictitious uh, information about them in the system. Again, five people seems a little on the light side for, you know, for this work. I, I would want to see maybe a little bit more. I'd start to worry if some of these names start to become familiar to the latent print examiners over the years. But again, that's one of those things uh, that can be tweaked from an initial pilot study. All right. So then the, the latent is look, they look at these latents and determine if they're suitable for comparison and suitable to be entered into APHIS. And if it uh, is entered into APHIS, then uh, the, you know, they look at the uh, the candidate list and they'll write up their ID if it, if it hits. And then the QA department will look at to confirm, yep, that's the person that it was supposed to hit to and that's who they identified. All right, good. That works out as a, uh, you know, as a pass. If it doesn't hit, they, you know, they mark it as a no hit to uh, after the latent search then the QA department will still look at it and see, okay, was the correct person in that candidate list where they should have made an ID? And then there were a couple instances where that was the case. And then that was you know, marked down as a miss uh, or an erroneous exclusion, uh, I think just or a missed ID, kind of similar terms here or different terms for a similar thing. Or in some instances, you know, the it was marked as a no ID and uh, that person wasn't on the candidate list. Uh, so that's that's one thing that I think that's one of the, the big limitations I saw in this. There, was, there didn't seem to be a follow-up to confirm why it didn't hit. Now, it looked like the, the, the APHIS software that they have available for the, the county system is a little on the older side. So that might have been one of the reasons why it didn't hit. Uh, but it, it could have been that the latent and the known didn't share an overlapping region or the examiner didn't follow best practice in marking up the latent for search. Uh, but, you know, which factor led to the latent not hitting? Uh, there wasn't kind of that follow through as to which reason it really came down to. Yeah, why don't, why don't we talk about that a little bit? Because that, that actually was one of the more surprising data points that uh, I, I got from the paper yeah. was how often they missed it when, in fact, it was in the database. So, in fact, it was 41% of the time they said no association, basically a no hit, when the person was in the database and, and should have been you know coming up as a candidate. Yeah, that's that, that actually struck me as really high. Yes. I, I mean, I... I, I know from when we had done some bench testing from our APHIS system, which was quite old. I mean, our, our, you know, when I worked for the state of Minnesota, our our thing was relatively old. And we were surprised when we had done some tests that we were, I think, I, I think our hit rate was something around 20%. And then when we tested it, we were missing it. Uh, I, I want to say it was close to 30%, maybe maybe 25% of the time. We might have missed the in, um, individual when they were in there. 
No, it couldn't have been that high. Maybe it was 15%. That's, that's right. It was 15%. And that, that surprised us uh, when we had done some benchmark tests. And so, you know, to read that 40% of the, or 40, 41.7% of the time, that's, that is really surprising. Yeah. Well, so part of it is, okay. So you look at, so one of the other things they did is they ran LQ metric uh, on all of these latent prints. And we'll get into that here in a second. But uh, so the LQ metric score overall for, for all latents that they dealt with uh, was around 53. And for the ones they deemed as APHIS quality, 55, you know, pretty, still pretty close. And the, the LQ metric score, what that's supposed to mean is the, the, the percent chance that uh, a latent has to hit in NGI, really, if it's matching known print is in the database. So it, that this no association was 41%, you can kind of expect it to be, you know, right around there based on the, the LQ metric score. However, um, from just other tests that I've done here recently, again, just to try to compare apples to apples here, uh, a set of latents where the average LQ metric was more around 70, so a little bit better than this set, uh, I was seeing a, a hit rate around 90%. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I, I think it's it's partially, I think it might be a mix of all these things of, you know, confirming that the regions actually overlap. Uh, that, that's the, probably the big one I would want uh, to to know. Right. To know. Right. Uh, particularly because if you've got people making these in a the lab and they're making these as proficiency tests and they're probably not trying to be overly tricky, but I wonder, I mean, I'd like to know when they're creating these because they don't want them overly easy, right? Because you've got humans selecting these latent prints. So they, they probably have a little bit of, well, oh, that's, this one might be way too easy. Let's go with this other one that has a little bit less information. Whereas if you're a police officer at a crime scene dusting and lifting prints, you are focusing on the easy ones. You want those easy ones to, you know, to give to your your examiners. So I, I do wonder if there isn't a little bit of test bias here in that the, the samples themselves are a little trickier and maybe they're a little more off to the side. Maybe they're a little more partial. Maybe they're a little more of a tip. And so, as you point out, may not have as much overlap with the known records. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that that's going to account for some of them, you know, if and when they upgrade to a, a next generation system, right? Uh, that you know what that number is going to do, what how that's going to change. So one of the the you know one of the possibilities of why it might miss is the examiner just might have not marked it up correctly. I I I wouldn't expect that to be the majority of the misses, but I I think it might be at least some percentage of them, and I, I I it doesn't seem that that's part of the review that the quality assurance group does is to to review how the examiner marked up the print, and that that seemed to me as something that that could be reviewed and or even checked right if you if the right. QA department goes through marks it up like like you know following best practices and then relaunches it and it hits, well, that's not a problem of the system or limitation of the system uh, or an overlapping region. That's the, the examiner did do something incorrectly and there should be 
uh, then some alerts so that the examiner can know, okay, this is what I need to change to, uh, to, you know, successfully get hits out of the system. Yeah, it'd been interesting to know if they do, you know, like an autoencode and then do a couple of manual minutia or it's an all manual minutia encoding. I'd, I'd be a little curious to know about that. And, and, and would it have an impact on the accuracy? Well, and even just placement of the minutia. Are you putting them in the right place? Are you marking up the, the ridges that you're, the minutia that you're supposed to and not marking the ones you're not supposed to, like in a recurve or, on short ridges or whatever that is, providing that feedback to the examiners of, you know, you're, you're, you're moving beyond best practice. Let's bring you back into the best practice circle. Yeah. So like I said, there were two occasions where the correct candidate was in the list that the examiner missed it, didn't see it and didn't make that identification. Uh, so those would be the, the two true erroneous exclusions. Right. And here's another point that I, I thought was interesting. So I, I mentioned a little bit earlier in the episode that there were these 376 latent prints that were um, reviewed in the in in these proficiency tests. But this is where I think it gets a, a little difficult for the error rate calculation. So another little side point I want to bring up, right? So in Let's say half of these lists, you know, forty-one percent of the time, the the individual was was there, but you still had someone reviewing a candidate list, right? So, even if the individual is in the system, the source was present. There are all these individuals that they could potentially make false positives to. This is where the error rate calculations, in my mind, are always a little tricky. Yep, I was just not... about to say this next. You're, you're right on. We're right on the same page. No. Okay. Well, right. So in like you know the FBI black box study, it's a one to one. It's one latent print, and you're given a single finger and said, "Well, here you go." Those are very simple calculations for the error rate problem. Here's where I think it gets tricky because I said earlier we get to a denominator for the false positive error rate, but the reality is. I'm not sure what denominator we use because in these APHIS lists, if they're returning 10 different people, well, that was 10 opportunities. And if the person actually was there, the source was present, that's still 10 opportunities to make a false positive to those 10 fingers that, w- that weren't made. So I, I'm, I really do find that these error rate calculations – Depending on how you go, you could have a, a really, really small false positive error rate. Uh, absolutely. So I'm looking here on table two, right? They have uh, the examiner's conclusion, uh, association, no association, and then the ground truth. And then they kind of filled in, all right, the examiner said association. Because this is, again, so we're not using the word identification because in Houston – they uh, they report out their APHIS hits um, as associations, preliminary associations, uh, as like investigative leads that don't have a, a verification step. Right. So uh, that's just why we're using the term association as opposed to identification. There For the sample in Table 2, uh, there were 124 cases where the examiner said preliminary association – and the ground truth was that they were from the same source. Uh, so those were all correct. But like you're saying, Glenn, you know, for each one of those, that's also kind of a ground truth exclusion where 
the other candidates in the list are, are potential distractors where the examiner could have made a bad ID just to the wrong finger. So right. is it their policy to you know get to the look at the number one candidate, make an association, and then stop and don't look at the rest of them? Okay, maybe then there isn't really that opportunity. Uh, but if it's maybe the second candidate, well, maybe there's not one opportunity to make a bad ID and then the correct ID, or maybe you look at all 10 and then now there's the bad, the good ID and then nine possible bad IDs or it's like you're saying that the, the, the math starts to get a little weird as to what to put in the denominator uh, and how many, how many comparisons I'm doing air quotes here actually occurred Again, the number of errors is is extremely low already, but it is important to to see that it's not this direct, simple right. two by two grid. Right? It gets kind of a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, even on the the false positive column where they've got zero false positives out of seventy four trials where the source was not present. So the the calculation you I think you're going to find from some individuals will be basically 0 out of 74 or you know less than 1 in 74. Whereas I would go mm, it's actually less than 1 in 740 because each one of those trials had 10 proposals and the examiner did not make a false positive to any of the 10 on that list. So it's not 74, it's 740. Well, so then, yeah, add in all the, 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 you know, the no hit or the non-matching candidates from the association column, right? So that's well, possibly... And, and, and that's, that's where I think it gets fuzzy because, as you say, if it was the top candidate and they stopped there, then I wouldn't give them the other nine. But if it was the second candidate, then I would give them the first one. Or if it was the 10th candidate then i'd give them you know the previous nine so we don't know how many comparisons they did out of that column that's what makes this so difficult when you have this one to n comparison i i think the study said that most of the time the the true candidate if on the list in the top 10 was in the first or second position most yeah, like of the time yeah like 90 something percent of the 98 or something percent of the time it was number 1 so yeah it was yeah, almost that, always out there at the top but yeah right so I'm willing to give a little bit of a pass on that one. But like you say, we don't know if they don't have a policy to look at all the other candidates as well. Uh, so I have a little question mark with that one. But definitely on the other side of it, I mean, I would think of 740 as my denominator there, not 74. I, I, I think our point here is that when you have one-to-end comparisons like this, and unless you are basically counting every comparison the person does – very challenging to come up with a true error rate, if you will, for the comparisons that were actually performed. Uh, absolutely. So let's talk about uh, latent quality metric, LQ, uh, LQM or LQ metric, and how kind of important that was to the overall study. They wanted to, to use some sort of objective measure to ensure that the samples that they were use, putting through this, this blind proficiency testing were roughly equivalent to the samples that examiners were seeing in real casework uh, and not uh, as they they measured having this difference where the the samples in open proficiency testing say from CTS are even using this alchemetric tool are coming out as a much higher quality or just a better latent 
uh, on average than uh, what you would see in uh, in casework. Let's see, like I said before, it was something 55, 56, somewhere around there was the average uh, LQ metric score. And then they described ranges of good, bad, and ugly uh, latent prints. And just from previous research using, you know, general regions or general scores to, to give them, give a latent print this good, bad, or ugly uh, label. Where, where good is kind of 65 to 90 or above, uh, bad is in the 45 to 65 range, and ugly is the 20 to 45 range. Uh, now, Glenn, I, I know you use LQ metric uh, you know, fairly frequently in casework. Is that, are those relatively accurate descriptions, good, bad, and ugly, for what those scores uh, look like? Well, yeah. In fact, I actually, you and I haven't talked about this, but we can come back to this in a moment. I've actually done my own internal validation on ULW and those scores. And I can share with listeners you know, some preliminary results that I have found using those scores. The, 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 I think the biggest difference is, so I don't actually use the score that they use in this paper. They use the, this quality score for the latent print. And as you said, it's a predictor of whether or not it will hit if the source is present in, in NGI. I actually use uh, the, the metric that it produces called the overall quality score or overall clarity score. This okay. was something that the original paper by Hicklin and others when Austin Hicklin uh, wrote this some years ago. This was the score that he, he sort of recommended. And it's the one that I prefer as well because it tells me the most information about the clarity and the surface area and uh, you know, whether or not we're dealing with high-quality high regions or medium-high quality and so on. It's, it's, it's the score that I prefer. So all of my scores I record are based on that overall clarity score. And I've tied that into... Uh, both value decisions in casework that I, I work with, as well as where it falls on the sweep fast complexity chart, whether it's if people are familiar with that chart, uh, zone A, zone B, or zone C for dealing with insufficient, complex, or non-complex latent print. So I've got tons of real working data from cases where I assess them as for their value and for their complexity on that SwigFast chart and then ran them through ULW to find where the scores are. So I have a nice range of scores that I find represent those conclusions. Yeah, looking at the the, the write-up from the FBI on what that overall clarity score means, it says it's a measure of the level and quantity of friction-rich detail. Uh, so it goes from 0 to 100 like the other scores, but it's not a probability a larger value indicates a greater level or quantity of friction-rich detail, presuming that it's using these other measurements also listed here, the area of the impression of different quality levels, and then also the number of minutiae that the, the system finds, uh, yeah. automated minutiae, you know, in, in determining that, uh, that number. Yeah, so for me, I actually have a table of when I get a when I run something through ULW, which in every case it's part of my standard process. I run every latent print that I deem is comparable. I will run it through the ULW software, which only takes thirty seconds per latent to run it through. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty fast, and get a score. And I find that when the score is from 
10 to 19, anything less than 10 is probably clearly no value and wouldn't even bother running it through. So most of the time when I run something through, I get a score from about 10 to 19, which would be like value for exclusion only zone. Once I start getting into the 20s, these are very marginal latent prints that are comparable, perhaps. They might be value for comparison, but they might also be pretty borderline or support for same source or that kind of level, those sort of inconclusives. And once I start getting anything above a 30, that is like value for identification only. And almost all the ones I'm looking right now that all my scores, pretty much everything that I say is is value for identification only. Very few of those, only one or two of them ever drop below a 30. And then when I get above a 40, that uh, that usually indicates not only is it value for identification only, but it is pretty easy and straightforward so it's really good data that kind of shows that score is is rather meaningful the other thing i need to mention here is that those scores change significantly for fingers versus palms i actually realized i had to have a whole different table for palms compared to Mm. fingers yeah it's it's quite different like a, a palm if you had a 20 for a palm that's like a no value palm uh so the scores are offset by about 20 so what would be an easy finger around 30, uh, that, that is about a 50 for a palm. Well, and if I remember, the, the, that t- the LK metric tool wasn't meant for palms. It was correct. It was, correct. So, so it, it's kind of using it a little bit out of scope. Well, I mean, to be fair, if you, if you kind of look into the, the, the notation of the software, It's a little on the old side now. It's from 2013. It hasn't really been updated recently, and it it still, you know, includes a caveat saying, you know, not for use with active casework. There's definitely some use for it, but um, I think as a field, we need to to keep moving forward because this is just getting quickly very old. Yeah, I agree. We need a vendor to step up and create a tool that would be. Uh, right, right, right. Working on it, working on it. Okay. Yeah. That little disclaimer on there, that that's an FBI thing. That that's that that yeah. has nothing to do with the value of this software or the people that created it. That's an FBI thing because they they never used it in casework. Got it. That makes sense. So I, I do want to talk just real quick about I've because I've I've had the opportunity to play with it a little bit because. Uh, I needed to run LQ metric on a couple hundred latent prints. And, um, I'm also, you know, on occasion somewhat lazy if, uh, if I have to do the same thing over and over again. Uh, so I, I wanted to just make people aware if they, if they weren't like I wasn't, that there is a method to batch run LQ metric, uh, on a whole folders worth of latent prints. Oh, shut up. Really? Where you don't you don't have to open each one one at a Come time on. into ULW, dude. I've wasted hours. That <laughs> <laughs> oh that oh that's horrible to find this out. So <laughs> <laughs> now I, I would say there is a limitation here where the Alchemetric tool is now looking at the entire image that you give it. Give it. Uh, yes. So you can't. You're not d- using the area of interest tool to lasso a specific latent print. 
you have to crop it to be the latent print, and then it's going to look at the entire thing all the way into the corners. Yeah, but and, and that's what I do in 98% of my runs, which is why I can run palms. There you go. And and from, I think if I remember correctly, even doing a 2 by 2 inch uh, palm worked just fine, and it did the whole yeah. thing. Right. It works really well as long as you don't choose an area of interest. And so, you can get like great scores, like 80s, 90s for palms. So I, um, if, if anyone's interested in some details on how to do that, just reach out and contact me and I, I can, I can show you the, uh, you know, the, my, my little process for, for running that or at least point you to the FBI document that describes how to run, uh, to run it from the command prompt. Yeah. Um, I'll be reaching out to you. Eric. <laughs> I'll 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 uh, I'll give you the quick uh, <laughs> the quick version of how to do that. And like yeah, I said, anyone else that uh, that reaches out to me, just let me know. Yeah, I I just want to point out that I, I Houston Forensic Science Center, CSAFE, I, I I think that people are on the right track to start using this kind of software. Although it has its limitations, I think it has real value in in adding some sort of metric to. Is this a good latent print or not? I mean, yes, we have our expertise, and that matters quite a bit. But I think this is th- this approach has real value to having a score and a metric and something that can be objectively measured. Absolutely, absolutely. What I wanted to kind of do to close out this little criticism I had of them of there's this category of why didn't it hit, and there's these different reasons why it may not have hit, and uh, they didn't ask. You know, they, they didn't kind of do the steps to investigate for each of the misses why why it missed in. Uh, well, at least they didn't report it, and they may they might have, but they didn't report it in the paper. So, but here's the thing: in the paper, they 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 described this right. They said yes, like this. These are the reasons why it may have missed, and they listed all the ones that you know that I thought of. And, uh, and they described it as a limitation of the paper. Like, that's fantastic to, to be aware of the research that you're doing, the limitations of your study, and to include all that in the paper. It's, it's something that, you know, I was thinking ahead of time as I was reading through, and then I got to the section where they described it themselves and was like, well, there you go. That exactly. Um, yeah. and that just made me, uh, you know, appreciate the paper even more. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, I, I'm I'm so impressed with the Houston Forensic Science Center, and I'm glad to see that they're leading the field in this kind of research. That I'm surprised is not being taken up by uh, by other agencies. But as we discussed in previous episodes, I mean they really have invested quite a bit into a program that allows them to develop this this kind of thing. All right. So the the last little criticism I have of the paper is. Blind proficiency testing is really only on a very specific, narrow part of their overall work, mm-hmm. right? It is, it's only on... You um, had this criticism last time, I think. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. It's only on basically, you know, powder lifts that, uh, that come in with no subject listed that need to go into APHIS. While sure, the examiner may not know which of these uh, cases is the quality assurance case, if an examiner is working on a case that involves like actually processing a gun, they know for hundred percent sure this is not a, a QA case. And if they, uh, if even if they get in a, a a latent lift case 
and they deem everything in the case to be no value, right? They know for 100% sure that there, there's no check for that. There's no quality, there's no like quality assurance step to see whether or not that was a correct decision. Sure, it gets still reviewed uh, by their, their tech reviewer or their verifier or whatever, but uh, there's no follow-up from quality assurance to see if that was an appropriate decision it kind of gets just a free pass out of that quality assurance or blind proficiency testing step. So it's really just start plugging the holes where as a case, when an examiner receives a case, no matter what decision they make, there needs to be, uh, if it's a, actually a blind proficiency test, every decision that they could possibly make should run into a quality assurance check on that decision, not just the, Ident, no ident decision out of APHIS. Well, I, th- I think you said earlier, uh, and, and, and it applies here as well. Uh, right? This is, they're still getting their footings on this. They're the first ones to do this. Exactly. Uh, there's, there's plenty more data that can be mined here, but you know, they're, uh, I don't know, I, I think they're taking a very reasonable approach to designing and implementing these kinds of studies step 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 wise absolutely and you know this is a great first step or or, or initial step or, or early step and then what i just described could be the next step right and, and that would flow right. naturally so uh, that i don't think that, that doesn't take away from anything that they published here because it's it's really is fantastic but i think it is the next logical step to uh, to take uh you know as they move forward with this yeah so one of the the last points I wanted to make on the paper was the they explored briefly, and this ties into our last episode. They explored briefly the concept of uh, inappropriate inconclusives, and I, they didn't go very far with this. And it kind of seemed like they weren't quite sure what to do. But they pointed out something that I think I I talked about in the last episode where we talked about inconclusives, is this concept of, well, you know, as we discussed in the drawer and scourge paper, there's really no way to know if it was an appropriate inconclusive or not. And, you know, it's really up to the examiner, and sometimes it might be appropriate, and sometimes it's not. And and it kind of leaves it wishy-washy. Yeah. But I think I said something along the lines of, well, no, there there is a way to do it. And one way is to look at the likelihood ratio aspect which is if there's a very high likelihood ratio, potential likelihood ratio on the latent print, and they go inconclusive on it and say that, or no value, uh, one might argue, well, no, there's a lot of discriminating information here. So you might have been able to have a stronger conclusion from this one. So we talked about it from the likelihood ratio standpoint. They looked at it from the LQ metric standpoint. So if you have a latent print that has a LQ metric, let me just Remember, I, I said 40 for a finger was was not only high, but relatively easy. So if you get a 50, right, from an LQ metric on a finger. The, the clarity and you look score, at, not the, not the, the main yeah, LQ sorry. metric score. Yeah, the, right. The clarity scores, again, that's the one I use the most. That's the one I've validated. So it's, that's one I'm familiar with. So if you get a 50 overall clarity score. And you look at the quality map, and it, it looks it looks legit. It's it, everything is reading is ridge detail, and someone says inconclusive on it. I now would say no, no, that is an erroneous inconclusive because right. clearly there is enough discriminating information here. And if your known exemplars ha- are are overlapping and are, and fine, which you can also run through an LQ metric, 
then then now we have some objective tools to begin to say, no, this was an inappropriate or an incorrect usage of inconclusive. So it there is a way to do it. It doesn't have to be wishy-washy if you tie it to something more objective and have a more objective scale for when something is of value and so on and so forth. And that's, again, where I think the paper touches just briefly but doesn't dig in deep enough or – uh, they they mention the drawer and scourge paper, but they really don't jump into that very deeply. Well, and and they had even one here. Well, they do actually list the clarity score uh, in the paper, and they had they just give a range. That's one other thing I wish they would do is instead of just giving like these kind of totals and percentages in figure one and figure two, if they'd done more of like a box and whiskers plot just to kind of mm, see a little mm -hmm. bit more there, but. That's a. They need to team up with Noblest for that. That's a really nitpicky kind of thing. But uh, they, uh, for one of the latents they deemed as insufficient APHIS quality, the score there for clarity went all the way up to fifty. They did have one they deemed right. insufficient APHIS quality, and uh, but the clarity was fifty. Um, right. I, I think overall we're we're very quickly closing in on a on a world where there is no longer a difference between. APHIS quality and comparison quality. Those are basically merged into just, you know, quality. Uh, right. But um, so I think that's kind of going to drop off here in the next couple of years. But uh, uh, just to expand on it even further, it, they could do other things as well, not just look at the LQ metric score or the likelihood ratio, but they could, they could also just run the search, right? The QA department could just stick that latent into APHIS that the examiner didn't search and see what happens. If it comes back with a, you know, pretty high score in APHIS, that, that's an, yeah. I mean, while it's not perfect, it's still another yeah. thing that they could use to measure, well, maybe this was an inappropriate and conclusive or sure. uh, give it out to a, um, you know, a panel of experts and give the latent and the known to them, the, you know, the latent first, What's your suitability decision? Here's the known. What do you think? And if the panel of experts come back saying, no, nah, that should have, should have been an ID or should have been compared or whatever, then, uh, you know, that's another way to, like you said, you don't have to kind of leave it wishy-washy of, well, we don't know what to do with these. We're just kind of, you know, let them sit. You know, there's, you know, different paths here require different amounts of effort, but there are other paths that you can go down. Yes. Yes. Again, really impressed with the paper overall, and and also with that agency, right? The with Houston investing the considerable amount of resources and money that it takes to to do this type of blind proficiency testing. Really impressed that they that they see the value in it and are moving forward with it, and then sharing their process uh, for other agencies to replicate. It really is very impressive. And heck, that you know, the past few months, it's just been all sorts of praises headed towards Texas agencies. Yeah, right. Yeah, and 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 rightfully so. I mean, Texas. We talked about this years ago in some episodes about Texas coming up with um, not just these programs, but you know, requiring agencies, forensic service providers, to become accredited and, and sort of. Yeah, really changing the game like the, the dna reform in texas has been huge uh, the houston forensic science center which has this 
which is really a company, a, you know, a board of directors as opposed to a law enforcement run agency. I mean, all these really reimagined way of doing forensic science, it really give them credit for what they're, what they're doing. All right. Uh, so Glenn, any um, final thoughts or upcoming classes? What, what do you, how do you want to close this out? Sure. Yeah, I, I can say that with uh, some confidence that although for the rest of the year, I'm, I've got one. I've got one class next week, which by the time this drops, I'll be teaching the class uh, in Indianapolis, and then I'm going to Canada, and that class is full. Uh, so I'm looking at next year for for classes. So if you're interested, you can go to RonSmithAndAssociates.com, and you can look at the schedule, and you'll see that I've got classes in March and April. I think May, I think in, in throughout the spring, all three classes are being taught. The advanced ACV class, the sufficiency and exclusions class with John Black. And then we even have on the schedule now an open enrollment with Brendan Max and Carrie Hall, the practical answers for challenging questions in the courtroom where you get basically taught by defense attorney all the kind of strategies that they look at for latent print uh, evidence and how they might challenge latent print evidence through cross-examination, which is a really fun class. I'm glad to be teaching that one again. So go to ronsmithandassociates.com to check out those classes coming up in 2022. I've got the the new exclusion class that that I'm teaching uh, through Idemia. If you want some more information about that, send me an email uh, or also look for the next upcoming uh, FIGS newsletter. Uh, I finally got a website up with more information about that class and the, the link to it will be, uh, will be in that newsletter. Where, where can a listener learn about the FIGS newsletter? Well, to learn about the FIGS newsletter and sign up to make sure you, you, know, you see the, the, the latest, boy, maybe more often than some of these episodes we're putting out here. <laughs> now but uh uh, go to the double loop podcast.com or actually that's it should say double loop podcast.com and uh you can click there to sign up get your email address uh, on that list you may have to use your personal email address depending on the the policies of your agency of what gets rejected or not but you know we'll work all that out but uh, yeah every month or so great information that uh that becca uh, puts out regarding papers, uh, polls, uh, questions. If you want to put out to a large group, you can send it in and, and have that question go out to the group. Uh, you know, just kind of all sorts of, uh, of this and this is and that's, uh, for, uh, for latent print examiners. Also at that same website, you can see all our episodes and, uh, also our double loop podcast store. Uh, it was funny at the, uh, both the IAI in, in Nashville and at the Florida IAI, lots of comments about the, uh, the, the shirts and the, you know, I got a fingerprint tie, all sorts of neat stuff. People asking, where can I get that? So uh, go to doubleloopodcast.com to the store there for more information about that. Uh, if you have any questions about uh, this episode or you know, anything else you know, that you want to send to me or Glenn, uh, send us emails, glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or eric at rayforensics.com. Uh, listen to us, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes. Remember, the opinions expressed are those of the speaker and not of anyone that they might work for. And I think that's about it. Uh, so we'll talk to you guys next time, uh, hopefully in, in a much shorter time than we've done uh, here recently. 
Bye, everybody. Have a good week.